with tiger if you're new here subscribe to hear new episodes every other day and this episode is with guido he is an exercise and rehabilitation specialist who travels all over the world helping elite athletes and just regular folks alike if you enjoy the show connect with me on social media and if you want to help the show grow posting an episode with a quick sentence about how just what you liked about it is the biggest help in the world so thank you very much and without further ado here's the show All right, and we're live. Guido, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Guido van Rijsegem. Uh, currently, my title is the CEO of uh, China Sports Medicine mm-hmm. and Exercise Science Private School. It's a four-year college-level program. We're now in the last phases to get this completely approved by the Chinese government, nice. so we can have you know more advertisement, etc. Because right, you used to be KEEP here, the KEEP program. Yeah, I used to work at Oregon State University as the coordinator of athletic training services. And then one of the services we provided was called KEEP uh, services, which is Kinetic Integration Exercise Professionals. So these were uh, students of Oregon State University studying kinesiology, pre-physical therapy, athletic training uh, that then get their uh, personal training degree and then basically they did uh, post rehabilitation services. Yeah, and that's actually how I met you. I came to you with chronic back pain uh-huh. and through deadlifting, it's it's completely gone away. The most interesting thing, you can see it right there. I was putting two, um, two, a 45 pound weight on of Olympic plates and it slammed into the other 45 and I got these the most you interesting. Got pinched. Yeah, and I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> I still got it, but I'm like, that is, that is brutal. But yeah, deadlifting completely removed my chronic back pain. Yeah, a lot of times um, what we consider pain isn't necessarily an injury. Uh, you know, pain can mask itself for a variety of reasons. Uh, so you can have pain because uh, you're overworking certain muscles. They get stiff, they get tight, they get yeah. tired, and that can cause discomfort. Uh, so pain is not necessarily uh, the you know the result of a real injury. Yeah. So in your scenario, that was the case. You know, we had to strengthen some specific muscles and make sure that other muscles weren't taken over. Mm-hmm. And through literally some corrective exercise strategies, uh, the problem got resolved. It did. So have you ever experienced chronic pain in your life? And like, well, a long time ago, um, I used to be a registered nurse in my home country, Belgium. Mm-hmm. And I was working in the ER and there was a patient going to fall off a stretcher. And I basically reached out as quickly as possible to catch her. She, she wouldn't slam on, on the floor. For a 150-pound yeah, person. Uh, oh, yeah, more Brutal. than that. And so I had a uh, sharp, real pain <laughs> yeah. uh, in my back that uh, basically debilitated me for, uh, for a couple of days, mm. not being able to get back to work. And actually, the first 48 hours, I was barely able to get out of my bed. Uh, so, uh, yeah, because actually injuries is kind of Those the typical story. Real. Yeah. You know, we get interested in what's going on and how can we prevent this. So it was one of the reasons that I changed my career and then uh, went to the University of Oregon, got a dual master's degree there. Uh, and then from there on out, my career just, you know, took off as an athletic trainer here in the United States. Absolutely. And so one thing that's really interesting that I kind of gathered from you in the key program, I didn't go through it, but my friend and roommate at the time, Rick Hubble did, um, is if you're running and you kind of think you sprained your ankle, 
but you can still run on it or move on it, it's important to actually do that, not to immediately stop and baby it and ice it. But in a situation like your back, like, did you ice it? Icing, I have found, has been tremendous help, but it's kind of getting some blowback lately. Yeah, uh, you know, basically, I actually finished my work shift. Uh, it was uncomfortable, but it wasn't to the point where it was too debilitating. Uh, went then home. Uh, came back from night shift actually you know went to bed went to sleep yeah. uh, during the day woke up around 1 30 in the afternoon with excruciating <sighs> back pain um, to the point where literally I was frozen in bed yeah. so yeah you know using the typical approach of ice and rest and and so forth uh, did the job mm-hmm. I like it and so what do you think pain is and I know you're also big on um, so it's just like a signal of something's wrong in your body like you don't think pain's actual injury necessarily pain is a very complex uh phenomenon uh it can be caused because of trauma it can also be caused because we're not used to have discomfort and so we we often have a a problem with the terminology everything's pain and and in certain languages like spanish for example there is one word for pain oh really dolor so if you're sore from working out you have dolor yeah so We, we as clinicians need to uh, understand and appreciate the cultural differences and how actually, I wouldn't call it pain, how threat is being absorbed within the cultural context uh, as also sometimes within the language context. And so uh, one of my hobbies for a long time is, is actually studying cultural anthropology. Oh, okay. And so uh, my wife and I travel extensively all over the world. We've been to Nepal, Myanmar, we were in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, two years ago, uh, horseback riding with the nomads in the mountains. And there is a distinctive difference. Um, so sometimes I actually ask these culturally very diverse populations, you know, have you ever had pain? Mm-hmm. Like I'll, ne- I'll never forget, we were in Myanmar on a, in a jungle trek and we stayed with local people in their, in their homes, huts really, you know, in the jungle. And there was this elderly woman that was working on the on the fields, and she obviously looked like she was above 65 years old. And so through our guide, I asked her how old she was. And she was 83 years old, okay. working very hard on, on, you know, on her rice paddy. And I asked her, have you ever had low back pain in your life? Mm-hmm. You know, because typically, you know, we in our Western culture think, you know, posture is a problem with back pain and all that kind of stuff. And, and this lady is actually stooped forward in so-called bad posture, yeah. you know, working and working. probably been doing that since she was a very young girl. Yeah. And she looked at me, of course, this is all through translation. And she basically said, uh, uh, what is back pain? Uh, oh, wow. And so it's, it's fascinating for me to see that um, in some parts of the world where people are not having cell phones, they're not sitting on, at tables they're on the floor, uh, they don't have our so-called luxuries, uh, but actually then don't have the negative consequences of our modern lifestyle, mm-hmm. like, for example, back pain. So, so pain is um, multiculturally different yeah. to begin with, number one. You can have pain that comes from a real trauma, let's say a car accident, yeah. or nociceptors, which are basically uh, nerve endings that give signals of pain, uh, are being uh, activated and become sometimes overactive or chronically be- become irritated. And now we learn a pattern. So pain is a behavior problem. Yeah. So if you've had frequent discomforts, but your doctor or your therapist tells you you have pain, or you've been taught since a child 
that what you feel is uncomfortable is pain, then actually it becomes a, a monster in itself, which yeah. it's now a expectation, a learned behavior. Because then you have knee pain. If someone yeah. tells you you have knee pain, you start walking differently, which yeah. then makes your muscles on the other leg maybe bigger, or, you know, atrophy on that leg, and then you walk differently. And so what's the end of that cycle? What's the, what's the downstream? Well, when we have either true pain because of trauma or interpretation of this is uncomfortable, we automatically change the way we move and as simple as walking. And as a uh, experienced clinician like myself, if I would have a patient coming into my office and they stand up, let's say, and they walk towards me, I can pretty much already tell, you know, what the problem is based on that movement pattern that they've now uh, inadvertently have created, you know, it's out of their control uh, because of an injury or a perceivement of an injury. So these movement patterns now that we normally have are changing into what we typically call a dysfunctional movement pattern. So now because of putting pressure on certain joints and body parts that are different than we normally do, then we can have secondary problems, tertiary problems, et cetera. So a lot of times uh, patients that I see that have more chronic problems, they will actually then tell you the whole history. It started with this and it developed into that. And, yeah. and now I have this problem and that problem and so forth. And so as clinicians, we need to be aware that where the area of pain is doesn't mean that that's where the problem is. And, and often my first treatments are not direct towards the let's call it injured body part, but actually these uh, dysfunctional patterns. This is based on a very interesting theory called the dynamic systems theory. So basically, in a simplified way towards the human body and injury, the way to explain it is this. We have a somewhat infinite way of movement through the variety of ranges of motion within our joints, uh, muscles, et cetera, et cetera. Even peripheral nerves and central nervous system will then dictate that as well. Mm-hmm. If we have now a threat, this can be even psychological. Uh, does need to be physical. Well, people with, let's say, depression okay. will have a, a different pattern, even in just their daily gait. Yeah. You know, their head is down, et cetera, et cetera. So th- I, I don't like to use the word pain anymore or injury. It's a threat to the body and the central nervous system. And the threat can come from a variety of reasons, uh, not only physical, but also mental. And it can also come from environmental, you know, reasons. Uh, As simple as air pollution, as simple as, uh, you know, a lot of traffic in big cities like Beijing, China. It changes how we move, it changes how we operate. And especially if that environment is not variable, so if you always walk on, you know, the sidewalk. As people with jobs do, they do yeah, the same thing in now for 20 years. Then that environment, in this case, the, 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 the ground, is also going to dictate how we move. Uh, often these people can then have, have often a very hard time adapting to a new environment. Mm-hmm. So if you take them out into the woods and go hiking, for example, uh, they're going to often then struggle to accommodate to a different terrain, uh, different shoes, etc. So pain is very, very complex. So based on this dynamic systems theory, we have a certain amount of attractor states. 
So a tractor state means if you need to pick up something off the ground that is, let's say, heavy, yeah. or you perceive it, it's going to be heavy. That's a whole other discussion. It really is. This perception of, you know, it's light, it's not light, it's yeah. big, it's small. If you're going to deadlift and I told you that's over your max, you might not be able to get it up. But then I was like, that's 200. I bet you would be more likely to lift it. Yeah, it's to the point where they've done some research on not putting numbers on the plates. Wow, really? Yeah, and make them have the same color, same thickness. Wow. So every plate looks exactly the same. Now, yeah. the weight is different. Mm -hmm. And so that already affects now our perception of I can or cannot do this. That's interesting. Did it show anything or are they still yeah, studying Yeah, actually right they show that, um, and these were in somewhat elite lifters, these yeah. studies. Uh, so their they, numbers are pretty dialed in. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they actually were able to squat more than they were perceiving to be able to squat. Wow. Uh, and there was a deadlift study as well. Yeah. So having different colors on plates is also culturally biased. So doing a lot of work in China now, red for them is a color of joy and happiness. Oh, interesting. Another While red effect. for us is threat. Anger. Right, yeah. yeah. So we have red light in the traffic. Mm -hmm. And a green light is good and red is bad. And orange flashing is, you know, watch out. Yeah. And so depending on where you are in the world, even as simple as a color will have a different uh, relationship on how that is perceived. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, if we get back to injury, if we now have a threat or a real trauma, then the amount of degrees of freedom that we have available to us to move is being restricted. Mm -hmm. Now, there's still quite a bit of debate how this happens. Uh, one of the theories says it's a central nervous system adaptation. Yeah. So it's something you learn, mm. then you perceive it, and you will actually then uh, basically... Uh, learn and relearn and and uh, augment that feedback system. Other theories are saying this, no, 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 this has very little to do with the central nervous system and learning. Yeah. It's a normal adaptation, and we see this in the animal world, like ants moving things around. They don't have a central nervous system. They don't have a thought process. Uh, so uh, very simple uh, uh uh, animals, let's say, on our planet, like as simple as a beetle that is moving a pile of dung uh, to put eggs in, you know, they never met their mom and dad and learned how to do this. Yeah. They just do this. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of that dynamic systems theory. So there's still a debate around, is this a learned behavior or central nervous system driven? Or is this actually something that just what they call emerge? In my opinion, it might be probably from a practical perspective, a combination of both. I think that's both, most of the big questions where you have two clear options. It tends to be somewhere in the middle right. with extreme right. cases being one or the other. Right. Um, speaking of nerves, though, I know this may be personal and uh, is something you told me a long time ago, but do you like uh, nerves getting stuck? You taught me nerve flossing mm -hmm. because were you as a baby like swaddled in a, like, or like people today are swaddled in blankets and like kept from moving as an infant? What's your what's your. Yeah, I was born a premature baby a long time ago. Yeah, I'm 60 now. Uh, and I don't know if they still do that today, but in those days, my mom said they basically swaddled you up and I was in an incubator for, for, uh, for almost three months. Three months. So with very little movement possible, yeah. you know, because basically was stuck. Yeah. And so since I was a kid... Uh, I, you know, I got involved in sports, gymnastics, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I was never the flexible kid. Yeah. And so my gymnastics teacher then actually would, you know, quite uncomfortably stretch me. And that just made it worse. Yeah, it, exactly. It made it worse. Now, it took me many, many, many years. I was already out of grad school at the University of Oregon before I started reading up on uh, the literature of nerve mobility and nerve mo- movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I actually had it, had it diagnosed that, indeed, I just don't have that glide and slide maneuver. Mm-hmm. As my body grew in length, it just didn't grow in range of motion. And so uh, those nerves have a harder time now and are often getting tethered or being restricted in yeah. certain anatomical parts. And so so an example I can't is, touch my toes to save my life. Yeah, but it's not your hamstrings that are too tight. It's, <laughs> it's that the nerves that are actually stuck. Uh, stuck is probably or, not the right terminology, oh, but there is less mobility. Yeah. So nerves can actually somewhat stretch, lengthen. Mm. It's almost like... You know, uh, like a harmonica, you know, and it's closed and then you open it up. Mm, not a harmonica. Uh, sorry. Yeah. 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 I know what you mean. What though. is that thing called? I don't even know. <laughs> the, the, they don't sound very Accordion. good. Accordion. Accordion. There we go. Yeah, there we go. So uh, it almost operates, if I want to simplify it, as an accordion, meaning yeah. the internal part of the accordion is the nerve, but then the ner- there's fibers around the nerve, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and there's different layers actually that can actually uh, lengthen, crimp, bend, and so our nervous system is is not very. Um, it's actually not vulnerable. Like I, when I came out of school, I thought nerves are very sensitive. We should never mess around with them. Blah blah blah. No, they can withstand a lot of stress. Interesting. Uh, but of course, just like any body tissue, it has a certain point where, you know, there's damage yeah. be done, uh, you know, at whatever a microscopic versus a microscopic level, complete tearing, for example, versus uh, getting irritated, inflamed yeah. around certain parts. So um, that was, I was actually lucky when I was uh, the medical coordinator for the Baltimore Orioles. I had an athlete, a pitcher from Australia, and he was a lefty. He was in our minor league system and dove for a ball and uh, at some point during a game. And he had somewhat of a whiplash type of uh, injury. Mm. So it was basically his neck got violently snapped to one side of his body as he dove for a ball, then landed with his shoulder on the ground, and then his head basically just got you know snapped to the side. Yeah. Um, because we had to spend a lot of money on a signing bonus in this young man, uh, and I must say that the Orioles were a phenomenal organization, meaning they wanted to take care of their athletes even nice. if they were injured. That's good. Uh, that uh, I was able to persuade our director of player development for me to go to Australia and actually learn under the neuro guru of those days, which was David Butler. Wow. So I spent 10 days there, uh, but realized that his population were chronic pain people mm-hmm. and not uh, acute, athletes. Yeah, yeah like, acute injuries. You know, of yeah. Sort, yeah. Uh, like, you know, my baseball players, my professional baseball players I was working with. So I actually um, modified the techniques uh, because it, it just didn't work with, you know, some of my athletes were, you know, 270 pounds. And the positioning of assessing these nerves which we call neurodynamics, 
wasn't really working too well for these larger, very strong individuals. So I actually have my own workshop and courses on that. Mm. Uh, one actually online on medbridgeeducation.com on how to assess and then also treat these uh, peripheral nerve and central nervous system problems that yeah. restrict range of motion or can cause pain cause or threat or whatever because that that was another part of it i deadlifted but i also nerve flossed nerve glided mm-hmm. or neuroglide whatever you want to call it and it helped a tremendous amount because my whole life i was exactly like you i wasn't flexible so i'd try stretching and then i'd try really stretching it would never help because stretching nerves like that where you just hold it that's not the right way to do it you like pump it like a gas pedal kind of thing. yeah yeah, I like it. I was curious, does, did baseball players ever experience chronic pain from doing one side with one? Like they throw and they bat with one side of their body. Like they're so one-sided for right. years. Yeah. Well, the interesting part is as I came back from Australia, you know, this is again quite a few years ago, like 20 years ago or so, uh, I started reading up the literature and David Butler actually then wrote a book. I can't remember what it was called, but I think it's actually called Neurodynamics, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um and then started delving into the literature, either that was directly related to his assessment and treatment techniques, or also I wanted to learn what the heck are these nerves now. Mm. And so um, the uh, <laughs> the crazy part is we had, uh, not only with the Orioles, but before that I was with the Texas Rangers, we actually had a couple of pitchers that had reoccurring medial elbow pain when they threw mm. at maximum velocity or close to maximum velocity. Not curve, but fastballs? Uh, well, it does, doesn't or really matter. Whenever, but, they, yeah, but whenever they're throwing. Let's say in a, game. a fastball, yeah. because the most amount of torque on the elbow. Mm. Uh, and so they experienced then medial elbow pain. Now, sometimes, but very infrequently, we would see some swelling in the area. So the consensus kind of was, this is either a tendon problem or it's a ligament problem. Mm. And some of these young men actually had normal MRIs, but then had surgery, so Whoa. they uh, <laughs> yeah they replaced a, a perfect healthy, <laughs> perfect, healthy uh, functioning uh, medial collateral ligament in their throwing elbow oh with uh, a graft, uh, and then so we and had to go, help you know, take them to the rehab, and then what happened when they were ready to throw again at near maximum velocity, the symptoms yeah. came back. Yeah, yeah. So, but oh you know, at God. that point. You know, this is, of course, a long time ago. People weren't really appreciating the uh, the aspects of our central and peripheral nervous system mm-hmm. and how in certain anatomical locations during certain activities, uh, they be- become a problem. And they typically mask a tendonitis, a tear uh, type of, uh, type of uh, scenario. So treatment obviously by shutting them down they started feeling better but the moment we got them back into throwing it was a problem Uh, the good news is that since uh, since then uh, the surgical approaches have been adjusted like they're transferring the nerve for example in different locations Mm. now and much much better results where it kind of comes down over that when you bend it yeah yeah okay so uh you know we've we've all learned not only from an assessment but and a treatment perspective and a return to uh, sports activities or regular day activities, but also we've you know the surgeons have learned to uh, to appreciate these problems. Uh, similarly, I've seen um, these professional athletes and non-professional athletes struggle with so-called hamstring tears. Ooh. You know what they say? I I tore my hamstring, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we would 
find uh, a location of pain within the muscle belly, uh, but you know there is no hematoma, for example. So if you tear a muscle, there's bleeding, there's got to be hematoma. Uh, that hematoma in a true hamstring tear, because of gravity, will descend down mm-hmm. into the leg. And I've seen actually some people treating the bruise versus oh. treating the injury. Yeah. Uh, so they think they're calves all yeah. bruised up. And but again, there, yeah. uh, in, in some occasions, I've seen uh, these, these athletes uh, not having a tear in their hamstring muscle or tendon or tendinous junction, but actually uh, uh, it was their tibial nerve or it was a, wow. uh, an extension of their sciatic nerve, for example. Yeah. So since then... Um, this has completely changed how I evaluate injuries, how I treat injuries, and how I allow athletes to return to full activity. Uh, and, you know, I've been to many sports organizations doing workshops on this because, at least in my days, that was not part of our curriculum to learn this. Uh, I still go uh, on a yearly basis to the University of Oregon and volunteer my time to work with their graduate students so they get exposed to this. Yeah. Uh, it's just a couple hours. It's like a three-hour workshop at the end of the day, part of their clinical uh, you know, education. Uh, and, and we're starting to see more and more clinicians of all kinds uh, to appreciate this. Aware, because if I had gone to someone else, I did. I went to physical therapy. I tried chiropractor and acupuncture, anything. There were no answers, but you were. I luckily enough came to you at the perfect time to tell me about nerves and strengthening the correct muscles, deadlifting and nerve gliding saved everything. Um, one thing going along with nerve system, do you have any experience um, with migraines? It seems like a lot of middle-aged women experience migraines, like chronic. All my friends' moms and a lot of women I've met have them debilitating. Do you, do you have any thoughts on those? Yes, there's actually quite a bit of literature on, um, on peripheral nerves causing, uh, I wouldn't call them migraines because migraines... You know, that's a whole other ball of wax. There's a variety of reasons why you can have migraine type of headaches. But uh, these peripheral nerves, for example, the the, uh, occipital nerve uh, sits uh, anatomically in the back of your skull. And so tension because of your your neck extensors, for example, because you're sitting behind a desk all day long, can put enough pressure on those nerves that can give a referred... Uh, headache type of pattern mm. that basically follows from the back of your skull. Uh, typically, they feel a headache above their eye, right mm. or left side, mm. uh, which then can be misdiagnosed as a migraine. Mm. So, yeah, so, nerves uh, can play a role in that as so well. What could be done with that, like a Mackenzie chin tuck kind of thing? or uh, It's not as simple to explain it like that. Um, uh, there, there is a technique that I developed, uh, which I've been calling for years, uh, nerve plucking. Oh. And so besides uh, the, the typical what we call neural gliding and sliding techniques, mm-hmm. uh, there is also uh, other techniques that can, uh, let's call it, release the tension on these nerves. Right. Uh, there is a physiological component to it, and then there's a mechanical component. So mechanically, if we decrease uh, stress on these nerves, then we have uh, a bigger opportunity that they restore themselves and symptoms disappear, hopefully then, you know, permanently. Uh, But it can be caused because of daily activities like, you know, indeed posture, Mm -hmm. uh, holding uh, basically uh, a postural position for a long period of time, uh, then causing the supporting muscles to contract 
Uh, they get fatigued, they get tight, they get tired. And then just like anything else, if we do it often, then actually these muscles are getting stronger yeah. and they're also getting bigger and that might cause... And other ones are getting shorter. Yeah. So your neck's always up. Yeah. Do you yeah. have a place we can learn about neuroplucking or do you have, do you have a quick uh, explanation? I'm doing workshops worldwide on that right now. Uh, at this moment, uh, there is... Uh, no planned workshop in the U.S., mm. uh, but I do have a uh, workshop coming now in Tokyo. I was also uh, in Singapore. Nice. Um, maybe Googling um, nerve, nerve plucking, plucking, something might pop up. Uh, but it's basically somewhat of a desynthesization of the peripheral pathway of nerves. Okay. So... If you have um, ulnar nerve irritation in your, let's say, your medial elbow because you're a baseball player, then actually I follow the peripheral nerve track to the nerve root of that same nerve. Up in your spine or? So basically following it all the way towards the brachial plexus, deep inside the the armpit area, the axilla, and then going all the way up to where the nerve roots are coming from uh, basically the nerve roots that are involved in, in, in creating in this, uh, ulnar nerve, uh, at that point. And so then you, you, you do a hard massage with those like metal things or like, what do you, no, what that's, do you do uh, that's grass to No, it's actually, uh, pulling on the skin, oh, really? uh, and see where the most sensitive area is. Oh, okay. Once you find an area that is tender and in, in a lot of cases it's incredibly tender, mm-hmm. then you actually pull on the skin you do a dermal traction Interesting. Yeah. Uh, there is not a lot of research on there uh, yet besides that it desynthesizes the area so you know it's uh, part of it is kind of a learned experience mm-hmm. you know if something's uncomfortable like a hot pot of coffee and you you grab it with your hand you say oh that's too hot yeah. but you go back to it over and over again as long as the temperature is not scalding and causing damage you know, we learn to desynthesize yeah. uh, the sensation of this. It's too hot. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after maybe five or six exposures, we can hold it a little bit longer because the threat disappears. Yeah. Basically, uh, our brain says, well, this is not so bad. This so is not a threat. I don't need to protect you that much. That's really interesting. So I'm actually now uh, working with two chiropractors, uh, one from L.A. and one in the Portland area. Uh, Justin Dean, uh, brilliant young chiropractor, and uh, is he the, in LA or Portland? Uh, he's in LA. Okay. And uh, Philip Snell, who's in Portland, Beautiful. Oregon. Uh, Justin uh, basically was tutored under Philip, and they created their own uh, system that, purely by accident, when I did a presentation at Exos in Phoenix, you know, uh, Justin was there. I was there. And he was treating a um, elite powerlifter with low back pain, yeah. and so he um, he uh, reached out to me and basically said, "Well, Guido, what would you normally do with this guy?" And so, purely by accident, we realized that our techniques are quite similar, nice. and that the approach and the rationale behind it are very, very similar. So, the three of us are now going to create a um, a workshop that we're going to take worldwide to not only chiropractors, but also other clinicians like athletic trainers and physical therapists, where we're combining not only um, neural glide and sliding techniques, but the plucking as well, but also 
a plucking or traction. We're not sure yet yeah. what we're going to cause it. Cool. We'll call it. Yeah. Uh, I call it plucking, but you know, yeah. we, we, we should come up with a different terminology. I like it. And which area of the fascial system, uh, and then using specific fascial techniques, mm -hmm. as also uh, which uh, joints mobility or immobility gets affected by these nerve type of uh, situations. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a workshop that has kind of three arms. Mm -hmm. Number one, the uh, neural mobilization techniques. Number two, looking at secondary factors, including fascia and other soft tissue, and then looking at joints and how they can negatively affect uh, these nerve problems. Yeah. Uh <laughs> <laughs> to, sh to shift gears a little bit, I really want to touch on proprioception because I know that's a big oh, thing boy. on you. But before we get there, what do you think of TRT for, for men who what are older? Uh, testosterone replacement therapy. Like, What do you think of... Um, I have no idea. You, you don't have any, any thoughts on it? Uh, I'm 60 and I'm, I guess I don't, it's not my problem yet. Okay, interesting. <laughs> All right. And so proprioception, that's a, a huge term that you've been kind of delving into more and more lately. Yes. Uh, this is again quite a few years ago, probably like 15 years ago or so. It all started with the um, functional movement screen. Uh, you know, Greg Cook, Lee Burton developed this uh, movement screen, which is basically somewhat of a, a screen that uh, clinicians and non-clinicians can use. And then based on the results of this screen, we can have somewhat of an idea or an interpretation how people um, move or not move appropriately enough based on some basic tests was it postural sway how much you sway and then if you put a leg uh, out or something no to catch this yourself? is a, a typical deep squat pattern oh, etc yeah and so it's been used extensively in sport and non-sport uh, related uh, in, uh, environments uh, athletic trainers are using it physical therapists chiropractors uh, doctors it's also being used uh, as far as i remember uh, as an nfl screen so all the nfl players uh, before they get drafted, they need to go through this screening process. Yeah. So anyhow, as that system became more and more popular, and I think it's a fantastic system, don't get me wrong, I started noticing that young clinicians around myself, as also students, started saying things that I thought were inappropriate. Meaning, if you don't score this much on the screen, mm -hmm. or if you don't squat this way, and if you don't deadlift that way, then it's wrong and we got to fix this. Yeah. Well, in my career, I had the pleasure and the opportunity to work with a variety of athletes, including uh, elite Olympic weightlifters, elite powerlifters, and now, of course, all the different sports that I got involved with. And there is a clear distinction between seeing a powerlifter squat, for example, uh, with a heavy load, uh, and seeing an Olympic weightlifter squat. So to, to simplify it, the powerlifter will typically lean forward more using their back extensors more when they squat. Well, the Olympic weightlifter will, will squat more erect, using actually their thigh muscles. And, and if you look at, you know, uh, squatting from the perspective of personal training as also rehabilitation, then it should be a, a thigh muscle-biased exercise, mm -hmm. right? You're trying to strengthen your leg muscles. Yeah. Uh, but in the powerlifter, uh, although their leg muscles are very strong, 
they will actually use more of a forward-leaning pattern. So you can uh, almost turn it into like a deadlift, but the weights yeah, are I call it the so. death squat. The death squat, yeah. <laughs> uh, so basically, as they slowly descend down, uh, they shift basically from a more typical squat pattern using the thighs predominantly uh, towards the spine, the low back, by leaning forward more. So... It, you know, it depends on what your functional goal or task is. Mm-hmm. That's going to drive movement. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that body restrictions like limitation of range of motion in your hip joint, for example, is not going to change how you squat and how you deadlift. That is correct. But I saw more and more people kind of hanging their hat on one pattern. Yeah. So this sounds crazy, but what I did one night was... I got on Google and I typed in the word movement and I typed in the word variability. Yeah. And uh, a book popped up uh, by David. Oh, his name escapes me right now. But anyhow, he's a researcher that is specialized in movement variability from a huge you know, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there on out, uh, I started delving deeper and deeper and deeper into the literature. And then an ex-fellow student of mine, uh, Nick Sturgio, Nicholas Sturgio, he's from Greece originally, is now at the University of Nebraska, got his PhD at the University of Oregon where I was you know, getting my dual master's. We became very good friends. He's a very smart guy. And he actually has been driving this movement variability from a pathologic perspective mm-hmm. uh, in this country and now worldwide. Uh you know, um, big time. So if you look at, uh, let's say, children with cerebral palsy, if they walk, they have a less variable pattern. Oh, because it's we, very similar every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's more predictable, right? Mm-hmm. So based on this movement variability concept, I then developed a strategy in, in what we call in the movement variability uh, literature, the dynamic systems theory approach, and one of those aspects uh, of the dynamic systems theory approach that I use is called attractor state. So basically, what I've now seen in my 30-plus years as a clinician uh, is that people with low back pain, for example, will have a predictable attractor state. So on the top of my head, what you're going to typically see is uh, their local stabilizer shutting down, so multifidus. Uh, is changing, fat infiltration, etc., becomes dysfunctional, transverse abdominus is taking over. Uh, so we're seeing um, repetitive changes, literature after literature after literature, research after research. People with low back pain have the following factors. Mm-hmm. Now, this will cause a whole cascade of change because, again, the central nervous system wants to continue you know, for you to walk and, and lift and whatever else you do. And it basically started, cause, over time, it causes more and more changes. So the initial attractor state of a non-low back pain person when they walk, for example, changes when that person has back pain. Even if it's a perceived back pain, not necessarily trauma, not necessarily injury yeah. or an inflammation. So based on those concepts, I now developed, that's my kinetic integrations class that I used to teach here, and I've taken worldwide, the evaluation of these attractor states. So in your patient, in your athlete, in your client, is it indeed present or not? 
So that's a checklist, basically. And then if it is, then there are specific exercise strategies to change that attractor state to a more optimal attractor state. Beautiful. Yeah, it's, a, it's, quite, it's quite fascinating. And in, and in reality, it's quite simple. Mm-hmm. And um, Don't do the same shit. Don't just walk on the pavement every day. Don't, I mean, like you have to do it when you're driving. You press the gas with one leg every day. Like you do, the world forces you into this very similar habit of doing. So what do you, what do you suggest for the average people, not extreme, like athletes or anything? Oh, that's a good question. So personally, my wife and I, every five years, uh, that's kind of the number around it, we learn something different. Oh, cool. So 15 years ago, we learned how to sea kayak. Mm. So, and then become efficient enough where we actually did a quite challenging sea kayaking trek off of Vancouver Island among wow. the small islands. Uh, so this is not something simple. Yeah. You know. Uh, then we learned how to mountain climb. So five years later, we went to Nepal and we climbed the eighth tallest mountain in the world, uh, Manaslu. Two years ago, we learned horseback riding. Mm-hmm. So we went to Kyrgyzstan, uh, Central Asia, and we did some strenuous hiking there as well, but then went horseback riding with the nomads. And so that's kind of our goal in a long-term perspective mm-hmm. is that the brain loves redundancy. It does. becomes very efficient at it. But that redundancy in itself decreases your what I call your variability vocabulary. So now you have a harder time to adjust and adapt to something new. Mm-hmm. Well, by actually exposing ourselves to you know learning something new. So the next step for my wife and I is going to be deep sea diving. Well, that'd be cool. Uh, so we we always try to find something physically challenging mm-hmm. and then prepare and train to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, on a short term. Uh, so not on a five-year scale, but let's say on a year scale, you just get outside. Yeah. You know, so uh, if, if you live in a city, I mean, we're fortunate here in Corvallis. Uh, a couple of days ago, my wife went on a, you know, beautiful hike uh, around, the, you know, the hills of Corvallis. Uh, the weekend before that, we were in band and, you know, uh, we went hiking. It was still snow and ice. Don't be afraid to expose yourself to challenging environments. Yeah. So that's basically the bottom line. The same thing with the weightlifters. Uh, often, especially at the elite level, they redundantly do the same stuff, mm-hmm. right? So they, they warm up the same way, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Now, as a relative novice, it's a good strategy to learn and to optimize. But these elite individuals, like, for example, Chris Duffin, uh, who I helped with low back pain, I basically had to changes the tractor state from a very stiff, very efficient lumbar spine muscle mass that is gigantic. This guy is top five strongest person in the world. Wow. Uh, you know, he, he, he can squat over 850 pounds and actually has been quite above that number as well, deadlifting over 1,000 pounds. So the, his back started bothering him because these back extensor muscles are so efficient mm-hmm but also trained to get stiff, to get tight. Yeah. And so that tightness became uncomfortable for him, not being able to lift more. So now at the end of his workout, his volume, which is basically your reps, your sets, and your weights that you all calculate together, mm-hmm. he started to struggle to get that to a high level. Mm. Well, this is maybe sound crazy, but what I did, I gave him a modified sit-up to stiffen his rectus abdominis and his abdominal muscles, basically, 
that basically then shut off that hyper stiffness of his low back and his low back pain was gone. Interesting. And but that's it, the, that's the opposite for most people. Most exactly. people's front sides because they all they you know their front sides are way overused and their back are just these atrophied things. So this is not for for everyone. This no, is for extreme. No, it athlete. depends on what the problem is. Yeah. Uh, in the elite individuals, it's often finding the dominant attractor state, mm-hmm. uh, muscle group or muscles. Sometimes it's more than one, and then actually change the attractor state by. Doing the opposite. Yeah. It's like you're literally almost, you know, stiffening up the antagonistic muscle group or, or groups. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've helped elite Olympic weightlifters with this and, you know, a variety of elite athletes. Uh, the more beginners, intermediate athletes or, let's say, weightlifters, uh, of course, they need to practice the lifts and, the mu- and need to make the muscles stronger that are required to make this lift happen at a, at a high level. Mm-hmm. But it totally changes when you work with the elite. Yeah, I'm with you. One thing you taught average people is that I came in and I showed you my deadlifting. You said actually sumo deadlifting is better unless you're competing. It lowers your risk of injury. Yeah, it's 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 always fascinating to me to see, uh, let's say, recreational weightlifters copying a, a weightlifting style that is being used by lifters that compete. Mm-hmm. And so they will use the traditional deadlift grip even uh, in foot stands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, From a recreational perspective, in my opinion, you want to get as much as bang for your buck. So if you have an hour to work out three times a week, well, let's recruit as many muscles as possible within the lifts that you're going to do. Uh, so I typically then advise uh, people to have a more wider stance, uh, turning their feet out more and actually have you know, a higher level of recruitment of more muscles. They're also now closer to the bar. Their body is less stress on their low back. Mm-hmm. Um, and often you see those type of lifts also being used as a warm-up in the elite Olympic weightlifters and the elite powerlifters. Nice. So it, it, it's, it's kind of funny how... The non-elite kind of copy the elite, but yeah. then don't copy completely what all the elites are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so they get into this competition lift, and that's their training. Yeah. And it, uh, that often doesn't make any sense to me. No. From, for me personally, like I almost drop most lifts. Like I'll bench really light, I'll squat really light, but deadlifts is the only one that I actually like. Because you're not really going to hurt yourself, especially sumo deadlifting, because the worst case, you drop it. But squatting, if you try too much, you can really hurt yourself. And I don't want to overwork my, my pecs. So it's like my entire point is I want to strengthen my back and my hinge. Because that's what, when you see people who have a weak like deadlift, like they just, their back almost goes straight into their hamstrings. It's just like, you can almost sense that it's like they've never really trained deadlift. I'd say that's the most important exercise for me personally, at least. Yeah. I. You know, I hate to say it this way, but it's it's like the fitness individuals are more and more copying these elite lifting patternings. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but they don't necessarily have the, you know, a proper training yeah. how to teach it. Uh, number one. Number two, uh, they don't have enough experience with it. Mm-hmm. So now we're seeing... Uh, sedentary individuals starting to, you know, squat and deadlift. I think at some point it's completely appropriate, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend to start with that. Really? Uh, let's get some basic strength first, and then let's get a little bit more, you know, complicated uh, with the lifts. Now, 
I do use the, um, what I would call a modified squat and a modified deadlift with my patient populations as well. But then I unload them, meaning I teach them the pattern, but they're not being completely loaded up. Mm. And, and, and for me, there is a progression towards these fundamental lifts, but they first need to master the fundamentals. So they're not doing it wrong. Um, we have about 10 minutes left. I know you have a heart out at an hour. Um, one of the other things you taught me that I've loved ever since is doing things with a plate over your head, squatting. <laughs> and it, actually, I started lunging with yep. a plate over my oh, head yeah. as well because it forces you to have that not death squat posture, but actually the upright Olympic lift posture. Yeah, that's again another example of the uh, changing the attractor state by putting the plate overhead. Uh, it was actually quite a few years ago, I was at a conference and Chu, he's a, he's a PhD from Canada. Uh, was actually presenting on weightlifting, and I can't remember exactly, you know, what the topic was, but demonstrated this overhead squat, basically, right? Yeah. And all the attendees, including myself, you know, were were then afterwards practicing it, and that immediately made sense to me how it changed that that uh, that squat pattern. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I use that quite a bit uh, in in uh, the patient population. I start just with a broomstick, nice. meaning it's not heavy, but I make them pull the broomstick or the band, the theraband, let's say, or or the tubing apart, uh, activating and or I would say stiffening up their lats which that that then forces them being transferred uh towards uh, the fascial system and in, into the glutes so it, you don't necessarily need to have a weight mm -hmm. but that would be the progress and people that want to return to lifting yeah. uh but i apply uh, similar strategies with with uh, all my patient populations as well. Mm -hmm. And then I got lucky that one of the PhD candidates here at OSU, by the name of Jung Gi Hong, uh, we became very good friends. He did uh, research on rate of force development, and he actually was an elite Olympic weightlifter in, in South Korea. At some point, he actually uh, received gold at the Asian Games. Oh, wow. And me then going to Korea, doing workshops on neurodynamics, on proprioception, etc., had then the pleasure to actually observe their Olympic weightlifters and their training systems and, 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 uh, and learned a lot from that, yeah. you know, uh, where uh, my patient populations became now people that did Olympic weightlifting. They were CrossFitters or whatever, uh, and they had some problems. Well, then it's my job to understand what th their physical demands are. Yeah. Uh, not knowing how to Olympic weightlift at that point, I had to learn what this was mm -hmm. and at least being able to, to perform it at, you know, at, 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 at a recreational level. The same thing with the kettlebell. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that thing was not heard of. And then suddenly kettlebell swings and Turkish get-ups, et cetera, became popular. So as a clinician, I think it's our responsibility if we work with these populations that have problems, that we learn at least the fundamentals uh, of these lifts and, and the whys and the research behind it. Yeah, I think that's the most beautiful thing of what you do and what I've gained from you is like even though you work with elite populations, functionality should be the goal of exercise and working out. It's just making sure your everyday life is pain-free and you're functional. Like I would give up anything to be perfectly symmetrical. 
you know? Um, but it's something that not very many people do because you always brush your teeth with your right hand. You drive with your right foot. I played baseball for years, so I'd always throw with the right hand. I've definitely developed like a bigger right trap and stuff. And it's just something that you kind of have to consciously, like when, whenever you're doing anything, just kind of break that habit. Um, I'm curious. So the, I've talked about a lot of things that you've been doing in the past. What are you excited about right now and in the future? Well, a couple of things that I'm uh, doing right now. Number one, um, a little bit over two years ago, I started in China this sports medicine uh, exercise science uh, private school, uh, which we're very close to getting approved by the Chinese government that this is actually a four-year college degree. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's about 24 individuals. Uh, most of them are personal trainers that want to do something more down the road. So I go to China about four or five times a year. Uh, this is a, what we call our academy. Simultaneously, uh, I'm doing a lot of workshops in a variety of locations of, uh, in China, not only Beijing, but also um, uh, Jinan, Huangzhou, and um, uh, some other place. Can't remember the name right now. And uh, have started my KI methodology in Japan. So that's uh, four times a year going over there. I'm training somebody actually to take over the whole Japanese market uh, and going to Singapore uh, for similar reasons. Nice. Simultaneously, uh, working with these two chiropractors, as I mentioned, to create a, uh, a workshop where we can teach people uh, not only the, the approaches of neurodynamics, uh, from a clinical perspective, but also, like I said before, uh, the specific joint mobilizations as also fascial yeah. uh, techniques that are incredibly uh, uh, helpful with our with our patients. Um, then also, I got approached uh, by an individual I can't mention his name yet; Ooh. it's not official enough to actually be uh, the director of education for a soccer league in China. Nice. So, Do you speak Chinese? Um, or nope. Mandarin? I, I, I can I can get food and I find a bathroom. That's yeah. probably about it. Really? And you go there that many times a year? That's surprising. <laughs> well, I, I travel to so many different countries. It's like a little bit Korean, a little bit Japanese, and a little bit Mandarin, and a little bit German, and a little bit, you know, other languages. So yeah. uh, I, I, the excuse is I'm not there long enough mm. to learn the language, number one. Number two, they all want to speak English. Oh, yeah. And so... Uh, you know, that's the, and then automatically these jobs come with a translator. They do. Nice. Yeah. So, but like I said, I'll, I'll, uh, I won't starve to death if I'm all by myself and I can find the bathroom, I can ask for those things. Yeah. Uh, so that would be a huge project. Uh, so this is a new, uh, soccer team being, uh, developed. They're actually, the stadium will be finished in about, uh, 14 months from now. So right. this is a, a real deal. Uh, and then I got approached by somebody who basically said, how about you being in charge of our education program? So my task there would be to train their future, um, they call them physios over there, uh, you know, more or less a cross between physical therapists and athletic trainers. Cool. Uh, they will provide some services on the field as also off the field, obviously. And then actually also train their future standing conditioning uh, staff. This is, of course, not a one-man show. It requires me to uh, hire a bunch of individuals that are going to come in and uh, teach certain parts of it. So this is not only their major league soccer level, but all the way down to their to children. And we're talking 
you know, close to a hundred thousand individuals. Yeah. A, and that's just a massive project. That's just now starting. You know, who knows? Uh, we're years. getting very close to get that started. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. beautiful. Um, and just even on the elevator before we actually started uh, speaking on air, you mentioned that you'd be up for talking about like what it's like traveling to China and now the whole Wuhan because that's one of the places you go. Yeah. Um, well, I would have left in two weeks from now to China to start our third year first academy. Uh, but of course, you know, everything's been canceled. Yeah. So how we're going to absorb that is two ways. Number one, some of the lectures we're going to do online. Nice. Um, because, you know, if it's teaching and not hands-on, we can easily absorb that uh, through an online education uh, platform. Number one. Number two, we're just postponing it. So I already have on my schedule when I'm coming back from Acad for Academy 2, 3, and 4. Mm -hmm. So we're basically pushing that back. And then we'll, uh, well, you know, we'll manage it. Yeah. And just, just so people listen, because I'm going to put this out in March, just so people listening, this is coming out uh, February, so we recording February 2nd. So the coronavirus is currently in full bloom right now. Hopefully let's, let's call this full bloom. Um, beautiful. Do you have any, any hopes or fears? Um, we just got a couple of minutes left. You have any closing thoughts kind of thing? Um, well, obviously I'm not an expert in these virus scenarios, but there's been outbreaks before, and uh, now that the World Health Organization is involved, I'm pretty pretty sure that you know yeah. this thing will get contained. And, and I meant hopes and fears with with life, yeah. man. Just everything. Yeah. You're excited. You got to be excited to deep sea dive. Oh yeah, that's that's the that's that's the next uh, big thing. Um, and then two years from now, my wife and I want to go back to Namibia, which is just north of South Africa. We did a uh, we did a phenomenal trip there. Uh, two years ago, and we're going to do the northern part of Namibia. So it's basically, you know, four-wheel drive safari, but it's yeah. not a guide; it's just us. And then we're going to wow. get into Botswana, cross the border, and uh, see the falls, and go into Mozambique. So um, you ever ran into trouble traveling all on your own in these these wild places? Never, I mean, never. Really? Like if you ran out of gas in the four-wheeler? Well, you're out, uh, out just there. waiting. People help you. Okay, nice. So you're not like you're not like crazy adventure trekking out where no one is. Oh yeah, we we do some things where you know you might not see anybody for three days. Three days. But you can do that in Eastern Oregon. Yeah. I mean, you know we've we've done that for years. Our first real adventure trip now with GPS and cell phones it becomes quite easy. You know, there's very few places on this planet where you don't have any reception um in the early 80s uh we actually went to morocco and did the whole basically that big part of uh, north africa and uh we actually had our son with us which was a year and three months old and we crossed the sahara desert from zagora uh, south morocco to mali timbuktu yeah. now that was adventure yeah especially <laughs> with a kid yeah we were the only uh non-local people on the caravan Wow. So it was a real caravan. You walk next to the dromedary who carries your stuff wow. and you cross the desert. So uh, compared to what, what we do now, it, it, it's, it's, it's know, not now it's quite simple. Do you, have a favorite, do you have a top place that like you'd suggest? Because I want to travel to um, a lot of places in Southeast Asia. I have a friend who's there right now going to Vietnam and all those places. I'm like, that seems gorgeous. Do you have a top place that you've traveled? Um, let's say it this way. If tomorrow I get diagnosed with a terminal illness yeah. and I can only do one more trip, mm -hmm. I would go back to Namibia. 
to Namibia, North Nam- Africa? Namibia, yeah. No, it's uh, just north of South Africa. North of South Africa. Nice. So it's a nice jungly area. No, no. It's actually... Really? I uh, thought the whole middle of Africa was this huge No, no, no. It's just, it's just north of South Africa. So it's the southern part, mm, southwest okay. of the southern tip of, so- of uh, Africa. Um, Beautiful. Just the, uh, the amount of space that is there, number one. Number two... Um, of course, the wildlife and then the scenery and then the cultural perspective. There are some uh, native people that still live in relatively uh, traditional settings. Uh, that's always been you know, fascinating for us to, uh, to meet different cultural groups. So, yeah, if I would die in the next six months, then that would be the last trip. I'll add it to my list. Thank you very much for speaking with me, sharing some of your knowledge. And I look forward to seeing where everything you, you got going goes. Mm-hmm.